Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatrist Podcast, a place for inspiration, insight, and information on holistic mental health. Join your host, Dr. Alice Lee, and discover critical information on safe, effective psychiatric medication withdrawal. Explore new ideas that enlighten and expand the mind with cutting-edge authors and experts, along with former patients as they share their miraculous healing journeys. It's time to build your well-being from the thought up. It's time for the Holistic Psychiatrist Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Alice Lee. Hello and welcome to the Holistic Psychiatrist Podcast, where building well-being from the thought up creates miraculous healing journeys. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Lee, the holistic psychiatrist practicing in Lehigh, Utah. Today, we're back with Dr. Annie Alexander, and she is here to share more of her experience in hypnosis. As a reminder, Dr. Annie Alexander has a PhD in psychology, and she's a certified hypnotherapist. She's the owner of the Northwest Hypnosis Center in Bellingham, Washington. And if you want to find out more about her practice, she's available online. Her website is called northwesthypnosiscenter.com. And her telephone number is 360-840-1075. Dr. Alexander specializes in trauma identification and integration. And she has been kind enough to give us a little bit more of her time to share some of her many interesting clinical experiences in hypnosis. Welcome, Dr. Alexander. Thank you for giving us so generously of your time. Thank you for inviting me back. I'm pleased to be here. This is going to be a really fun podcast because we're going to be hearing lots of stories from your many years of experience in hypnosis. Just to be clear, how many years have you actually worked as a hypnotherapist? I'm only going into my third year, to be quite honest with you, uh-huh. or completing my third year. Mm-hmm. I started many, many years ago, 1984, learning about hypnosis, but mm-hmm. didn't actually become certified until 2018. Mm, okay, interesting. One thing I wanted to explore a little bit more at the beginning of our interview is your interest in evolutionary astrology. And I know nothing about that. I know very little about astrology at all. So I was wondering if you can share what it is and how you integrate it into your practice. Sure. I'll see if I can take something that's as big as the universe and make it really small and very (laughs) functional and practical for you. (laughs) Evolutionary astrology is relatively new this century, but it differs from most any other astrological paradigm in that it answers the question, why am I here? What's my purpose? And although most astrology will focus on your strengths and weaknesses and challenges, as well as timing intersections, evolutionary astrology takes a look at the big picture. And by that, I mean all of your cumulative life experience. So another way of saying that is past lives. Hmm. So it looks at what you've been doing in many past lives, and it looks at the overall development of a human being, just as you would if you're looking at the development from the birth of a child Mm -hmm. all the way through grade school, middle school, high school, college. We can look at a person's 
life experiences expanded beyond that to include many incarnations. And that's because nobody comes into this life as a blank slate mm-hmm. or tabula rasa, depending upon your academic experience. Everybody comes in with generally some trauma. Mm. And it's realized prior to being conceived and incarnated. So it's realized while in the conscious only without a body state. Mm -hmm. But by the time we come into this physical body, we have a veil that comes over us that causes us literally to forget or to not remember until we actively work upon it. Mm -hmm. There are individuals who remember who they were Mm -hmm. earlier on in life. And those are the people who end up on the Today Show Mm-hmm. With, with their parents, you know, because they have an absolute obsession for World War II airplanes. There was somebody like that a few years back. He was just a kid when he started talking about World War II and being a fighter pilot and all this stuff that he had absolutely no life or lived experience for. And his parents took him to psychologists and psychiatrists and everywhere mm-hmm. until they determined that he was really remembering a past life his most recent Mm -hmm. past life. And this was verified with actual historical data. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. That put a new spin on things. Can you help me understand the difference between a past life versus a life that might be encoded in the DNA of a person that they inherit from their ancestors? Since the DNA carries so much information And we have multiple generations that add to that information as we go from generation to generation. So how can you tell it's actually a past life versus genetic information held in our, I guess, in our cells from an ancestor? I think that when I do regression, which Mm -hmm. I do a lot with people, Mm -hmm. then the actual experience brought forth by the subconscious mind Mm -hmm is that lived experience of the individual. Okay. They may struggle to accept that mm-hmm. because their conscious mind interferes with that and says, was that really real? Did I really remember that? Did I embellish upon that? And so on. But the subconscious mind works so much differently than the conscious mind. Mm-hmm. It's a right brain mechanism, whereas the conscious mind is a left brain sequential logical mechanism. Mm -hmm. The right brain subconscious mind is very holistic, very intermingled, and very Mm non-sequential. So the information that somebody brings forth from a regression, Mm -hmm. whether it's dedicated to past life or not, or whether they spontaneously end up in what turns out to be a past life, Mm -hmm. that information is brought forward and integrated into the current life material. And I'm presuming that it is that person's actual experience. Every once in a while, because the boundaries can be kind of fuzzy or the reported experience of the individual can sometimes be fuzzier than not, they find themselves questioning, hey, was this just something that I was a part of or did this actually happen to me? Mm -hmm. In a way, it's like saying, Are the results of domestic violence as significant if I was simply, and I put that in quotes, a bystander passively watching or if I was the intended victim? And our research has shown us that secondary trauma or passive trauma is just as significant as primary trauma. 
So whether somebody was, let's just give an example because it's very colorful, crossing the street in the 1800s and got hit by a horse, a runaway horse and cart, Mm -hmm. mowed down, or whether they were on the sidewalk watching that and felt the trauma through their body because it's a shock mm-hmm. is almost, almost irrelevant mm-hmm. because the net result of trauma is very similar. Mm, okay. The difference might be the individual who actually lived that experience might have come up with some decisions like I'm never going to cross the street again, just to give you a very kind of mm-hmm. crass or gross example. Whereas Mm -hmm. the person who was observing this event, but very close Mm -hmm. might think, gee, horses are really dangerous. Mm -hmm. So you can see how their perspective would be different, which then might lead them into a different set of thoughts and behaviors down the line. And that leads to the next question, which is how does reviewing a past trauma in a regressed hypnotic session help that person to heal? Because wouldn't it be re-experiencing the trauma? How is it that they can review a trauma in the hypnotic session and somehow come out of that hypnotic state and have their problem resolved? It depends upon the work that's being done within the session. As a five-path hypnotherapist, which is a designation that I'm certified under, unlike other hypnotherapists, I have advanced training Mm-hmm. And that advanced training helps me to help the client integrate the material clearly into the session rather than just use the session as information and then wonder what the client will do with it later on. It's okay. a very active process of engagement with the individual. Mm-hmm. So does going into a past life where there was trauma and the clients recalling that, does that put the client in center stage for re-experiencing the trauma? And the answer is sometimes yes, sometimes not so much. Hmm. The reason for that is when the subconscious mind reviews the trauma, since that's the incident we're talking about, as opposed to picking daisies in the field, which is generally Mm -hmm. not going to be traumatic. Mm -hmm. So when there's a traumatic incident, the subconscious mind has the ability, because it is so very circular and graphic Mm -hmm. and right brain to kind of duck and weave and dissociate to some extent Mm -hmm. and watch it from a more observer perspective rather than a first person. This is happening to me now perspective. Mm -hmm. That's one answer. The concomitant and yet second answer is it behooves the, the hypnotherapist to utilize their skills to encourage the individual to step back into an observer position so that they can go through the event to gain the information, but without the amplitude of such trauma happening all over again. So they're A, already in a relaxed state, which is very useful. Mm -hmm. And B, if I suggest to a client that they take a step back or watch it from the back of the room or watch it from a distance away that's comfortable and safe enough for the client, then they can do so and go through the event without having the immediacy of the emotional response. 
Okay. So a lot of it depends on how the hypnotherapist handles that information, helps the patient or client be able to process it in a psychotherapeutic manner. Is that what you're saying? That is correct. It really rely upon, you really want to rely upon the skill of the hypnotherapist to ensure that Mm -hmm. the welfare of the client is at stake. And if the client is becoming overwhelmed to automatically make that suggestion to create a buffer zone, basically a safety net so that the client can experience what they need to in order to gain the information, but they're not devastated by the event itself again. Mm -hmm. So in in terms of evolutionary astrology, going back to the fact that it's helping people to understand their purpose, are you just using their date of birth and their time of birth to get that information? Or is it a different process? Because a lot of astrologists will just use the person's date of birth to get a lot of information about that person. Whereas you're talking about a process that is trying to give information about that person from past lives. So that would be many different dates of birth. Yeah, <laughs> Right. There's a lot to be gained from mm-hmm. just the birth date. Okay. And I can do that, mm-hmm. especially when I'm doing free readings. I can offer people an on the spot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can do that for you if we want I would to love play that. that. Okay. Play <laughs> that as an out as an example. Okay. Um, and, and there's a lot that you can gain from that. Really, the depth test is to gain the birth date and the exact time of birth as well as the location in order to create a chart because it's the entirety of the chart that will provide much more of the specifics. Other than that, it's a guessing game and I don't want to guess. I don't want to provide you with information which is irrelevant. I want it to be relevant to who you are and the reason that you're seeking that information so creating a chart is really the gold standard. It's the way to go. Oh, look what you have there. <laughs> That's yes. a birth certificate. <laughs> I was showing Dr. Alexander my birth certificate, which has my location. And then also has my date of birth and the time of birth. So I'm always very curious about, you know, these types of modalities and what they can show us but maybe another time we can talk. Whenever you want to jump into that, just let me know and I'll start looking things up for you. Oh, okay. That'd be great. You know, when we talk about past lives, one of the things I have question about is the issue of time and how time is relevant when you're a physical person living a life on the earth, on the planet. But once you're a kind of a spiritual being and you're out of your body, My understanding is at that point, time becomes different, that you can be at any point in time. And I just wanted to ask you whether that has relevance as you're working with evolutionary astrology, when maybe the spirit of that individual has maybe lived one life in the 1800s, let's say, and then their next life is not in the 21st century, but more like their next life might be in the 1300s or something, and they jump around. I mean, does that ever happen where the spirit is actually living life at different points in time, but it doesn't have to be sequential? Actually, according to quantum physics, that's absolutely correct, because it doesn't need to be sequential. And I've heard some very advanced talk about this, where there are parts of the soul which remain in certain timelines. 
And I was just reading the other day from a book by Lee Strieber, who has written some books about his contact with extraterrestrial civilizations. But he was writing in the in his book, an experience where he felt like he was living five different lifetimes at the same time. And I've heard some other people talk about how on a spiritual level, you could have multiple lives at the same time for some people. For anybody, let's, let's put it that way, because it's potential. Okay. Whether or not that potential is fulfilled and the individual is doing that, who knows? But the potential exists for people to live in multiple timelines at the same time. And you may hear it being spoken of as a parallel universe. Uh-huh. Yes, I've heard one, about that. Mm-hmm. Right. One terminology piece that's used. And an individual can be living in other timelines. And I think there's a lot of Hollywood sci-fi that talks about, well, let's, you know, going back to the future and all that sort of thing and everything mm-hmm. that's come after that. Mm-hmm. Because the concept is really there about mm-hmm. being able to, I don't know about the technology and and crossing it in a DeLorean on a railroad track <laughs> at, at certain speed. But outside of that, the idea is correct. And that you certainly can be living in multiple timelines. And how will that impact your current timeline? You know, that's an amazing question. I've never really thought about that before. But what I will tell you is that the timeline that I'm working in right now with evolutionary astrology is a composite or it's a culmination of all previous timelines. So whether any of those previous timelines is active or not, may show up, I'm just letting my mind run free for a second here, Mm -hmm. may show up in what we call a progress chart. And there's a natal chart, and then there's a progress chart. Progress chart is mostly a a snapshot in any point in time of how far you've progressed from your natal chart until now. It's like, how have you evolved until now? And then, of course, we can add several overlays of transits, what's happening above you in the stars right now for all of us and overlay that onto the progress chart just like we can overlay it onto the natal chart which is the blueprint and that's relatively static whereas the progress chart is always dynamic it's always going to be moving every tick of the clock every second it will be dynamic so how will that impact what i read for people now what I'm reading for people now is where their body is now. Let's put it that way. Okay. However, their consciousness may be collecting data. Mm-hmm. And that may very well be some of what's showing in a progress chart. And I don't know that I'd want to close the door on that and say, oh, it's not what's showing in a progress chart. Mm-hmm. I think it possibly could. I find our discussion really fascinating, interesting, and fun. I had another idea that I wanted to throw out and for us to discuss. And that is when I went to this talk by Deepak Chopra, he showed a video of a baby developing in the womb and, you know, it's beautiful music in the background. And then at the end of the movie, he talks about what a miraculous thing it is for us to be even present as human beings now, because the evolutionary changes is shown in the development of that baby. So in the womb, you start off with um, a tail, you have paddles for your hands and feet, you look like a salamander, (laughs) you know, when you're just developing, and eventually all of those things shift and change. So even in the womb, 
the changes almost seems evolutionary because you're seeing a human body go through all of these different stages where they come out initially looking like some kind of tadpole and then eventually evolve into a human form. It makes me wonder whether evolutionary astrology has some thoughts or some ideas about our evolution as not just human beings in multiple lives, but does it have something to say about evolution in terms of the evolutionary of the human species as it initially evolved on the planet? Because of the way that process gets almost like replicated during gestation. I wonder about our evolution in terms of as a species, whether we evolved somehow in our genes from an earlier life form and become more and more complex and then evolved into where we are right now. And who knows where we can evolve from this point on into, you know, many years to come. But whether that plays a role in terms of our psyche as well, in terms of that kind of evolutionary development. It does. And I don't think we can separate ourselves and say, hey, we're just individuals developing in the womb. And our evolutionary intention is specific to what we intend to accomplish in this lifetime and represented by the birth chart, because we are a member of a larger species. And as such, we carry those genes. Okay. We absolutely do. So whether it's on a physical level, which is to some degree what you're talking about, or whether, and I want to close the loop on this earlier conversation, it's on a more psychological level, which is the ancestral or family constellation of DNA or issues that we're bringing forth. We most certainly are. And that's what happens to a lot of people. So let me answer this in reverse order, catching up to our earlier loop. A lot of people are moving forward into this life with issues from family ancestry. Mm -hmm. And they are not issues that they want to carry forward with them, but they don't even know that they are carrying forward until perhaps a process like hypnotherapy reveals that, in which case we can stop right in the middle, but we're not Mm -hmm. stopping our hypnosis. We're stopping to gauge that and creating a boundary. We're creating a boundary because the individual has suddenly come to an aha, to an awareness, even in hypnosis. And even if they can't say, oh my God, I'm connecting the dots, their psyche is connecting the dots. And that in and of itself is creating new awareness. And that new awareness Mm -hmm. creates a different perspective with which to now have new beliefs. These new beliefs Mm -hmm. then encode themselves into sensations, which ultimately we call feelings, which will then drive behaviors, which is the manifestation of all of this that we see. It's the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. And so many people's I'm one of them because I've looked at my chart and I know that one of my evolutionary intentions is to stop the family lineage of dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people truly do come in with this imperative that they no more is basically Mm -hmm. the bottom line. Mm -hmm. We've got to put an end to this. And in doing so, create the change, which then creates all the change all the way down the line, physical, emotional mental and spiritual into what we might see as a next generation now catching up to your conversation about how an embryo develops in the womb and as a result of decisions that they made prior to incarnating Mm -hmm. 
based upon a prior life or life between lives, which is a lot of the work that I do as well. And now they're coming into physical form. And so the tadpole, maybe it has a tweak on it now because just to give you a visual, because the person has decided to eliminate the family ancestry of dysfunction. And that causes the body to develop with a tweak or a twist. Mm -hmm. It could be in a good way, but just Mm -hmm. to give you that visual and like, now the physical body begins to develop without that thing that they Mm -hmm. had before. Mm -hmm. And so on goes the psyche as it develops as well. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that you're talking about how energy and thought can then form the physical body differently because there's a different purpose for that. And intention. And intention. And and that's the piece that I want to highlight here with evolutionary astrology. It's all about the soul's intention for that lifetime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's say a person draws to a close their prior life. And I'm not saying it was the last one before this one, but just mm-hmm. a prior life. Mm-hmm. And their intention, they made some decisions. Mm-hmm. And in life between lives, where they are purely in consciousness, they have come to some understanding that they didn't have or couldn't have while in the physical body. So now they have this higher awareness, self awareness, consciousness. And when they're ready to incarnate again, and of course, Currently, it's in human form. That's the way we do it here on this planet. So they're going to incarnate, but now they've come with a different intention. And that intention, unless they had that illumination at some point along the way, that intention may not have ever been seeded. It may never have come to fruition. But now the soul realizes, aha, I can't go back into life having those kind of relationships again. I'm going to have to shift. So it's my intention to fill in the blank, Mm -hmm. therefore laying the groundwork for the blueprint of the natal chart. I see. You remind me of a book written by Robert Schwartz. He wrote a book called The Soul's Gift. And he actually writes about how our lives are meant to have a certain purpose and to help our soul to continue to grow through our experiences and how traumas are there again, to help the soul evolve. It's interesting how he does ask different people to obtain that information through people with special gifts in energy medicine. Some of the things that he has written about has to do with past lives as well. So it was kind of interesting, some of the things that you mentioned. One of the things I I was thinking about as you were talking is this aha moment. Sometimes people get during their sessions. And I was wondering if the aha moment that people get during hypnosis, because the right brain is working so much more consciously during that time, whether the aha moment during a hypnotic session is different than aha moment, let's say, in our conscious waking hours, whether it's more of a holistic kind of a bolus of understanding that is almost like much more integrative and much more complete of an aha moment? I want to say yes. And then I'm going to say no. And the yes is for all the reasons that you mentioned. Okay. And because we're already at the root, which is the subconscious mind. And so it takes hold very quickly and can be very permanent Mm -hmm. with the conscious mind. The ahas are the same kind of ahas that you'd receive in the subconscious zone, if you will, or in theta mode with hypnosis but they're much more short-lived 
they may not seem short-lived, but they are just because the conscious mind is like a steel trap and it wants to close up on itself. And a lot of times people will have a hard time going back to revisit that aha and going, oh, what was that? Kind of get their head wrapped around it so that they can integrate it. Whereas in the hypnotic relaxed state, it's easier Mm-hmm. To get your head wrapped around it, it makes more sense because the conscious mind's not interfering. Mm-hmm. So when I go through and emerge people, we debrief the session in as much as they wish to. Mm-hmm. That's a point when they're attempting to integrate the material, but they're actually integrating it with the conscious mind because the subconscious mind already has it. So they're mm. just trying to partner or marry their conscious with their subconscious so that it feels more holistic to them. Whereas at the subconscious level, it already is whole. I see. Yeah. That wholeness is almost like a signature aspect of the right brain. Certainly. Yeah. So I wanted to move on to just ask you to share some vignettes, maybe vignettes and stories from your experiences as a hypnotherapist. And some of the questions I had wondered about, and we can just start with the first question, which is what is the most surprising thing that happened in your practice that you would say? Well, I do have something that I can recall, and it is Mm -hmm. not at all colorful. Okay. So it's kind of an oxymoron, but it was surprising to me mm-hmm. that a man in his oh mid-30s came to see me for help with obsessive compulsive thinking, surrounded by his religious upbringing. Mm-hmm. And as you and, you and I as mental health practitioners fully know, OCD thinking can be among the most difficult to disrupt and repattern. Mm-hmm. And... I thought, oh man, how am I going to work with this guy in five or six sessions and really help him have some results that he's looking for? A very, very bright man who was among the brightest that I've ever met. And yet he was working as a truck driver. Mm. And I don't mean that as a diss to truck drivers. That's not where I'm going with this. It's just that he had kept himself repressed, according to his own statements, because his OCD behavior was so out of control that it was hard for him to actually hold a regular job or a job differently than a truck driving job would allow him to do, which is to be on his own, to think his thoughts, to be on the road with nobody looking over his shoulder. And that was the benefit of being the truck driver. We moved through hypnosis. We moved into the basis of his fear and it it turns out to have been a hidden belief Okay. And I say hidden because it was unbeknownst to him until we got into the regression work mm-hmm. that he would be disowned by his family if he did not adopt their evangelical belief systems. And his family was very important to him and he didn't want to be disowned. So mm-hmm. he kept it to himself. And these were very vocal, thou shall not do X, Y, Z kind of family dogma that he had to live with. And he was a very much of a, a contrasting individual. He's, it was attempting to individuate. He was very free thinking. Mm-hmm. And while he wasn't necessarily liberal in his politics, he was attempting to individuate from that group of religiosity that he had grown up in. Hmm. And how did that have to do with his OCD? 
because he developed a coping mechanism when he was young or lay in mm -hmm. bed at night mm -hmm. and repeat certain phrases to help him cope with what he felt was shame and guilt mm -hmm. if he did not adopt the evangelical beliefs systems. Okay. And he was afraid to run counter to that, to be in contrast to that, lest he be condemned to hell, which was the family's paradigm. And he was frightened that he would end up in what he imagined to be hell mm -hmm. if he did not adopt their beliefs. So he had to develop some coping mechanisms that became very entrenched early on, you know, when he was five, six, seven, eight mm -hmm. years old. And he mm -hmm. practiced this ardently and it became such um, a rigid pattern for him that he took it into adulthood and it manifested itself in what was later diagnosed as OCD. Interesting. Wow, that's fascinating. So after you discovered that root cause and after he became aware of it, what happened? Did he get better? He actually did. That's why I bring it up as a model to talk about because that was probably one of the most surprising things. This was somebody I just did not think was going to really change his life patterns very mm -hmm. much. The OCD patterning being very rigid mm -hmm. and very entrenched. And I guess I had hope for him but I didn't know how much he was really going to grow and gain until we were able to clear his anxiety from impending doom mm -hmm. as he saw it mm -hmm. to suddenly freeing up his life. And mm -hmm. he stopped smoking and drinking, even though that's not why he came to me. Mm -hmm. He was a smoker and a drinker, but that was the least of his concerns. And he had kind of cut back on doing all that and just decided he was going to change his career mm -hmm. and, I mean, everything in his life shifted as a result of this aha moment. So he was no longer bound by those obsessive compulsive rituals anymore? Yeah, he stopped them. Oh, um, wow. Pretty much on his own on a dime. And wow, I was not expecting that at all. Mm, that's very powerful. In terms of his insights, how many sessions did it take for him to reach that insight? It took three Wow. And we completed with five sessions wow. because we had beautiful. some additional tasks to do. But yeah, I was, I was blown away by that. That's wonderful. Wow. Thank you for that. That was very informative about the power of hypnosis and insight. And once you can connect at that deep level, at the subconscious level, what a big shift it can be, how thoughts and our beliefs can be at the root of our behaviors. And what I guess as a psychiatrist we think of as biochemical functionings, like we think about them in terms of neurotransmitters. But from what you're saying is that sometimes these neurotransmitters are just leaves on the tree. And at the root of the tree is just a simple belief. At times, yes. I mean, I'm working with a man now who has a particular set of beliefs, again, very rigid, very OCD-ish mm -hmm. about himself that are a compilation of both past life and this life, which is not uncommon to have the trauma repeated so that it comes up for healing. Mm -hmm. So to have the same similar trauma, similar themed trauma mm -hmm. repeated in this life, you know, it can go one of a couple of ways. It can reinforce his belief about himself, which was not holding himself in esteem whatsoever, mm -hmm. or it could pop up so that he can address it, confront it and release it. But it sometimes takes several lifetimes or more for the soul to 
what we call exhaust that belief mm. or belief system or behavior or what it is. And it doesn't necessarily just vanish mm-hmm. in a single lifetime. It can, but then there are many times when it may not. And that's just because of the potency and the force of it. And it needs to be played out in all its different potential scenarios in order for the soul to be able to release it, Mm -hmm. to surrender it, if you will, and decide that they've gained as much mileage from this dysfunctional condition as they possibly can get in service to their growth and evolution. Right. I agree. All right. My next question that I wanted to ask you is what is the most rewarding recovery story that you've experienced as a clinician? I worked with a woman who's an energy worker Mm -hmm. and she was around 60, 60 years of age. She had been crippled, crippled by anxiety since she was a little girl. Mm -hmm. It was just a really long time to live in this kind of discomfort. She had tried every modality under the sun as far Mm -hmm. as she related to me. Mm-hmm. but she just wasn't able to clear it. Now we did, we probably ended up doing 10 or 12 sessions because we needed to clear her anxiety. And we worked through some past life associations that mm-hmm. showed up in this life in the form of her mother and her mother's rage and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. We went back to the womb with her because that's where it began in this lifetime. Mm. Her mother was extraordinarily angry and uncomfortable about her status or station in life. And of course, that's what's going to happen when you're in the womb. You absorb all of that mm-hmm. energy and information. And some of it will make sense to you in development in utero, and some will not. So the developing child took this on. And from before birth, she realized how paralyzed and fearful she was, mm-hmm. even as she was born, not realizing that it was her mother's rage, but doing what children always do, which is to assume they're the epicenter, you know, in that early narcissistic development, that they're the epicenter of anything that's right or wrong. And she never knew how to separate herself from that rage. So then she just always acted it out. And it caused a life of restriction for her. She wasn't able to travel. She had to be close to the bathroom at all times. It was difficult for her to develop a practice and a clientele. She didn't want to take on any more than one person at a given time because of all the different multitasking she would have to do and the fear that that engendered mm-hmm. and then how that would trigger the root cause, which she was, it was out of sight for her at that time. Mm-hmm. So we worked on it. Just when every time I I thought it was cleared and she thought it was cleared, she'd go, gosh, I had a dream. Or we'd do brief after the last session and she'd say, you know, it was much better, but I still found myself hesitant to go out. So we used that, we regressed from that, we cleared it, Mm -hmm. and then I could tell that the tide was turning Mm -hmm. and long about the 10th session or so, Mm -hmm. you know, she would come to sessions smiling Mm -hmm. Uh, She would look more empowered. She would sound more empowered. She was making plans to travel to Europe. This was pre-COVID, of course. And she was really getting some traction under her. And she felt like she had her life back. It took 60 years to get there, Mm -hmm. but she felt like she was going to start living her life. And it was just in time for her husband to retire so that Mm -hmm. they could travel together. So that felt Mm -hmm. pretty wonderful to me. Wow. 
You mentioned about how some of the issues with the mom might be absorbed by the developing embryo during gestation. How does that happen? How does the child actually get that understanding? Is it intuitively, like they just intuitively get it? Or is it a spiritual experience? Or because it's pre-verbal, right? Correct. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. But when I talk to clients who are in regression in the womb, mm-hmm. we can have a conversation just like you and I are having. Mm-hmm. And we can dialogue back and forth because now that the cognitive capacity has been developed, the mm-hmm. cognitive capacity can translate mm. or what that earlier sensation or intuition, it could have been and or both was apparent to the child. And even though it's pre-verbal, the child has a feeling that then the cognitive apparatus, which is the mind talking to me mm-hmm. in regression, will say, I'm not safe. I'm not safe. I'm not safe. It's not safe. Mom is angry. Mm-hmm. So they're able to make that translation based upon the body sensation plus a combination of some amount of intuition Plus just whatever feedback mechanisms are available to the individual to lead them to understand what their emotions are trying to tell them. Now, in that state, when you're actually communicating with, let's say, a a developing embryo and they're saying, I don't feel safe, are you then giving them feedback during the hypnotic session where you're trying to convince them that they're safe or how are you helping the experience to dissipate for that individual? Because I practice five path hypnotherapy and we are committed to root cause. Mm-hmm. My agenda does not exist. Mm-hmm. My agenda is their agenda. Mm-hmm. So my job as a facilitator is to help the individual. And I say the individual could be the one in the womb that I'm referring mm-hmm. to, to help the individual understand the circumstances surrounding their environment and what caused that. So I am simultaneously speaking with the individual in the womb, as well as the current grown up or adult. So I actually have the individual split off into parts so that I have the observing adult mm-hmm. notice what it was that the embryo is going through and contribute their information to the best of their ability. And between that observing adult, who's also in hypnosis and myself, mm-hmm we are going to put our heads together and come up with a likely scenario, but that's not going to be sufficient. I'm always going to want to check that out with the individual that we are focused on. And in this case, it's the embryo and say, Mm -hmm. Oh, so it sounds like mom was really angry or really worried about something. And then I'll ask the adult adult. Do you have any clue or any information what your mom was concerned about. And in adults of mothers who were their biological mothers, of course, they're going to have some historical data. Mm-hmm. In adults where they've been adopted mm-hmm. or they've been separated from their biological mom, they won't. Mm-hmm. So we have to go a different route to accommodate for that. But I'm always wanting to know what the circumstances were so that we can feed that information to the child, the in utero child who can then begin to understand the circumstances around them. And then they come 
to their own conclusion rather spontaneously, mm -hmm. oh, there's nothing wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Mom was upset because she had to pay bills. Mom mm -hmm. didn't have the money. Mm -hmm. Oh, and that automatically creates the insight and the connect the dots scenario, mm -hmm. which in and of itself pops the trauma out. Mm -hmm. Maybe not from the subtle bodies, but from most of the bodies, certainly the mind, and allows them to shift their perspective enough to see reality for what it was, rather than the reality that they have imagined, which has thus caused the pattern, which then causes the unwanted behaviors. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting that the developing embryo could know so much, and yet in some ways be so mistaken that they could influence the rest of that individual's life because of that mistaken understanding. And it's no different at any age, even after birth. Mm -hmm. So whether it's one, two, three, four, all the way on up the scale, you know, you can't expect a one-year-old to have much better information than the embryo is going to have. And mm -hmm. yet, and yet they do. And so what you're doing is providing a basis for what really happened rather than what the, I'll say the client at any mm -hmm. age assumed happened mm, yeah, or their what, interpretation of what they think happened. I've worked and talked with other clinicians who have worked with children who are adopted and they're often misunderstanding of that process as being their fault, that if they were good enough or if they were somehow different, that they would not have been given up at the time of birth and been in an adopted family. I've also worked with children who are adopted. And when you can heal that through a form of energy medicine, whether it's hypnosis or some other form, what I've observed is that the individual's depression or anxiety heals very easily. I would agree with you. I've worked with a lot of adults who were adopted mm -hmm. and they usually have some amount of information, even if mm -hmm. it's not correct, they have something. And so that's enough for us to get going with. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that it absolutely clears their doubts, but their self-esteem will improve and all of the symptoms, you know, that they bring to the session that they bring to be healed Mm -hmm. will definitely improve or subside and thus their lives will improve as a result. Absolutely. And it is not something that erases or erodes over time. It's not like, well, five years later, they find themselves in the same situation because the information that they're getting occurs at a subconscious level. And once the subconscious mind gets it as the archivist of all experiences, mm -hmm. it gets it. It doesn't need to be redone. If anything needs to be redone through hypnosis or some other energy medicine modality, it's because other things have surfaced now that the individual has not been aware of, even though it might look similar. So somebody would say, well, hypnosis didn't work for me because, and I say, let's take a closer look at this. And it's usually a parallel issue or one that wasn't worked on previously is now coming to the surface however much time later to be resolved. Another question I was very interested in asking you is what is the most important thing a patient helped you to learn in your practice? 
I don't know if there's a the most important mm -hmm. thing, but there certainly are a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Listening for me has definitely been the lesson over and over and over again. It's not like I didn't know how to listen. So I'm always tuning into that. But sometimes it might take me a couple of rotations to really hear exactly what this client is saying, even though it sounds exactly like what a hundred other clients have said, but to hear it in their context. So to meet the client where they are is another way of saying to be able to listen in a very compassionate way and without judgment and without agenda and to be as completely present as I can be, which allows me to really hear their story as everybody's story is different. I agree that that's a, a very important lesson to learn when we work with other individuals. I also think that as clinicians, when you see so many different people in so many different circumstances and you get to understand what's in their heart, I think one of the biggest gifts that we can gain from our work with individuals is tolerance and compassion and the ability to end up being quite unjudgmental of other people, always kind of thinking that the more we can understand someone, the more we will be able to love an individual despite their imperfections and their struggles. It is quite true. And of course, that all starts at home with everything else. Because when I'm listening to somebody and I feel a twinge inside of myself, mm -hmm. I realize, oh, that's a trigger. Mm-hmm. I'm being triggered, not what they said or did, but I'm being triggered by the information and I better get on top of that ASAP mm -hmm. so that I can clear that clutter and make room to hear them so that I stay as present as possible. So it becomes a learning for me. And, and maybe that's one of the best takeaways mm -hmm. that all clients have offered as their gift to me is helping me to become more self-accepting. Mm -hmm. I think love is another way of saying that because the more I am self-accepting, the easier it is to accept someone else. So the word tolerance doesn't even enter into the picture. It's a matter of self-acceptance will hopefully translate to other acceptance mm -hmm. because we're, I don't want to get too woo-woo groovy on this, but we all can come down to the common denominator of love. And so we're all in this vat of love together, despite how that gets demonstrated and being able to extend our ability to see, hear, and feel another means that we have to do that for ourselves first. Otherwise we won't be able to see, hear, and feel another at capacity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We'll, we'll be faking our way through it as best we can getting the home squared away is really important. And I suppose working with clients is a really good way to keep me on track with myself. Yeah, or in alignment. Mm -hmm. I definitely resonate with everything that you've said and agree that as healers, we continually need to be self-aware and watch for those triggers and continue to try to heal ourselves, always trying to find ways in which we can better ourselves and grow. And I agree also that the individuals we end up working with end up giving us gifts in return as we work with them. We get to grow and we get to become better people because of our experiences with them. 
We do, and I hope that our gift of offering what we know as guides or facilitators helps them with the goals that they're trying to reach. So whether it's psychiatry or hypnotherapy or astrology or some other modality, they're looking for a goal. They have a goal in mind. And it's not our job to heal another so much as it is to be in the presence of another to help them see what it is that they need to see in order to heal themselves. Excellent. Well, we'll need to kind of close up our session today. And I just wondered if you have any last words that you wanted to say before we finish our session? Just that this has been really a great experience for me. And I love the depth and the openness at which you and this program allows people to come together and, and to meet and to kind of brainstorm sometimes. <laughs> and I hope it helps as many people as can listen to this. Yeah, I hope so too. I've really had a lot of fun just exploring all sorts of different ideas that come up in my mind as we talk. I hope that our audience who's listening have enjoyed our time together as well. And if you have enjoyed our program, I hope that you will have a chance to contact Dr. Alexander if you ever need her help. And let me share her information. Dr. Annie Alexander is located in Bellingham, Washington, and she is reachable on her website called Northwest Hypnosis Center. Her telephone number is 360-840-1075. I'm really grateful for you being here and sharing your wisdom and your insights today. Really appreciate the wonderful work that you do with other people. I'm just really grateful that you are a fellow clinician who can share the burden of so many people who are looking for help and that you're able to help people in such powerful ways. So thank you so much for everything that you are. Thank you. And thanks for allowing me to participate in this really great forum. Oh, you're welcome. If you've enjoyed today's content, please subscribe to this weekly podcast for more informative insights on holistic psychiatry and holistic practitioners in general. Also, please subscribe to my weekly updates on my website, holisticpsychiatrist.com for wonderful stories and developments from my holistic practice and where you'll find links to all my social media platforms. Until next time, let's keep building our well-being from the thought up and have a wonderful, joyful week. The content provided by this podcast is for informational purposes only and has not been approved by the US FDA. This podcast is not intended to provide personal medical advice, which should be obtained from a medical professional. An ironic media production. Visit us at ironicmedia.com.